This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Any home or business can quickly become infested with mold with the introduction of a water source like a roof or plumbing leak. When your home, your belongings, or your business becomes damaged, it's not just about cleaning up the mess, it's about reclaiming your life. And that's why you need to call the Water and Mold Removal Hotline. A licensed, fully insured, affordable, non-invasive solution to solving any water and mold problems. Our team of trained specialists are available with 24-7 emergency service. We will quickly evaluate your problem and give you a plan that will guarantee results. Water causes damage and mold can spread throughout your property in as little as 48 to 72 hours and can produce allergens and irritants that have the potential to cause serious health hazards. So don't waste time. Give us a call now. For any water or mold problems, call the Water and Mold Removal Hotline. Call 800-442-7043 today for a free estimate. That's 800-442-7043. 800-442-7043. Spreading freedom across the nation. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hunt. Great to have you here as always. Thank you so much for joining. Uh, we are in Freestyle Friday, which means it'll be a uh, very awesome, laid-back, relaxed, mellow, entertaining, informative show. That's just how we do things. And uh, I'm very excited to be here with you, as always. Thank you. 888-900-3393. You know, this is, I have to say this. This is breaking fake news. Or rather, breaking news from the last hour or so um, that is now fake news. You may have seen this story that up to 100,000 National Guardsmen uh, might have been called up to round up illegal immigrants. Uh, Originally, the story was reported as including millions who were nowhere near the uh, border. And already they're saying this isn't true. Already they're saying this. now we get to now we get to have the debate, the, the back and forth, the discussion over why would the AP go forward with this and possibly be so wrong. And I also wonder why. I mean, you got the Drudge Report now saying AP botch National Guard not called on illegals. How can they get this so completely and utterly wrong? I, I just want to know. I am curious how that is possible. Uh, Once again, you have a major news organization that is seemingly running with fake news. So why are we supposed to just accept this as normal, normal now? They get these things wrong, and then when we turn around and say, well, you know, you get it wrong, and once again, it should be no surprise that, assuming this is wrong, and I, I know that now, they're, of course, the journalists are going to say, their sources say it has been discussed. I don't even know what that's supposed to mean. Are, are they mobilizing 100,000 National Guard troops or not? Saying that it was discussed makes it sound like somebody 
overheard something and then went on to report it as though it was a policy decision the administration had already made. Well, that's that's not reporting. That's just page six gossip. That's just rumor mongering. That's not what these journalists are supposed to be doing. But you will notice they don't care and they and they run with it because this clearly was going to heighten tensions around the Trump administration already. This is what they are doing. This is how they view their role. This is what they are up to right now. It is a constant search for the most damaging stories and headlines possible about this administration, even if it's not true and the paper in question or the publication in question is harming its credibility by pushing the story. That's where we are. That's what is going on right now. So I, I will continue to look closely at this and uh, make sure that I keep us up to speed over the course of the show today uh, with any new updates about what's going on here. This is just crazy to me, though. One moment, it's 100,000 National Guard troops being called up. I mean, if, if that's not true, that's a pretty big whoopsie. And that the press could run through this and, and decide that they're going to uh, go with it anyway. I mean, this is the, the proposal. Let me give you some of the details. Proposal, according to the Daily Mail here, reportedly was making the rounds the Department of Homeland Security would identify 11 immigrant-heavy states and ask them to mobilize troops. And the governors would have an opt-out privilege, but the total number of National Guardsmen and women could approach 100,000. White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer says an 11-page draft seen by the Associated Press is not a White House document. Spicer says the AP report is 100% not true. It is false. It is irresponsible to be saying this. Uh, a White House aide confirms the Daily Mail that the idea has been discussed. Uh, okay, discussed by whom? In what context? Where? Who is this White House aide? Could you imagine? Who in the Trump who in the White House right now is trying to actively damage the Trump administration? That would be a, a look a, an unwise uh, thing to do, I think, for anybody who values their career and their future. And if you hate the Trump administration so much that you think that they should be stopped at any cost, you should resign from your government job. You should leave behind your government paycheck and your benefits and step out publicly and say, I will do anything to stop the Trump administration. They are evil. They are vile. It's not acceptable. It's not moral. It's not ethical to stay in a government position and lie to people and abuse their trust and betray them so that you can advance a political agenda. What we've seen this week, and this ties into the General Flynn resignation and the and the continued acrimony uh, about what the IC is telling Trump and what he's not uh, is that the bureaucracy is a problem. Trump's whole notion of draining the swamp, the idea that he needs to rein in this out-of-control government, is looking more, uh, more important and more urgent with each passing day. I would recommend to you all an excellent, and if I had seen it in time, I would have tried to get him on, um, uh, an excellent piece by Matt Continetti, uh, 
where he asked the question. And Matt Cottonetti of FreeBeacon.com. So you go to Washington FreeBeacon to, to uh, read it. The question he asks is, who rules the United States? And he says, how bureaucrats are fighting the voters for control of our country. And he's spot on here. Everything he says is absolutely spot on. You have people in the, in the, who have access to classified information who would betray their oath. You, you protect classified, protecting classified is a central core part of your job when you work in national security with the United States government. I know about this because it was a central part of my job. It's what I was doing. And I took it very seriously. And I'll be honest with you, I had moments of real anxiety and panic while I was in the CIA because even just in passing to a friend or uh, you know, to an associate, I, I maybe would say something and I think to myself, was that, that wasn't, that wasn't a problem, was it? And no, it wasn't. But that's the mentality. The mentality is you stay so far away from crossing that line that you have to be careful that you're not becoming paranoid. Paranoia for a good intelligence officer is unfortunately a normal state of mind. That's what happens to you. It's very difficult. There's a lot of anxiety, stress, and pressure that you feel when you're dealing with this information, especially when you're having to interact down on Capitol Hill and the White House and you're around other people, you know, you're dealing with uh, foreign uh, foreign allies. What can you tell them? What can you not tell them? I mean, this is the, there's a lot of, look, there's a lot of judgment calls that have to be made about this, but also there's a vigilance. And the only thing I can, I can compare it to is the, the sense of heightened um, concern for your safety that you feel in a war zone. And those of you who are former military have even more than that. You have the, the vigilance of being in combat and being deployed. But even just being in a, in a war zone where your safety is under, there's a constant underlying threat, right? Because you never know what's going to happen. Every vehicle that pulls up to you at a checkpoint, and I've, you know, I've, I was outside the wire in both Iraq and Afghanistan, every time you're up in a, in a helicopter or even fixed wing, you know, if you were to get blown out of the sky or you get blown, I mean, people, it would be a, maybe it would get some news coverage, maybe, but it, it wouldn't be out of it wouldn't be out of uh, the it wouldn't be out of the question. And so you develop this sense of constant vigilance and also and there's an anxiety, there's a tension, there's a stress that comes with that. With classified, you create this mentality of I have to protect this information all the time. I have to be incredibly careful with it. And the only way to really do that is to really have your your neurons get set up in a certain way where you become uh, almost a, you shut down. You know, the moment that somebody in D.C. would say, oh, you know, well, and I was working in the Iraq office during the height of the Iraq war. So people want to talk to me about Iraq, I just would shut the conversation down. You know, oh, you know, hey, oh, were you, where do you work? You work for the government? Oh, isn't it crazy what's going on with Iraq? I would, I would, switch to hey did you see that uh, looks like there's some great you know pigs pigs in a blanket over there that are being passed around by our lovely host why don't we go eat those i mean you just would switch the subject or just get off get off the topic right away is that being too cautious maybe but it helps you sleep at night when you're dealing with really sensitive operational material and, and platforms so it's in that i'm just giving you some of the context it's in that 
environment, that psychological context, that you have some people, and I believe that they are senior White House officials on the, under the Obama administration and senior DOJ officials who were either Obama appointees or Obama partisans, but they leaked a private phone conversation that was collected through intelligence means, not from what we know, and I, this could, I might have to amend this statement in the future because I'm not sure and I haven't seen any of, these, any of this classified. I don't know, but I'm just basing this on the press reports. Uh, not collected through a standard law enforcement investigation, which, which in and of itself would be improper, but that they would disclose possibly top secret information to harm. Remember, they, they didn't disclose it to save lives. They didn't disclose it to uh, unearth human rights abuses or horrific wrongdoing or, you know, you, you, you can make an argument. You can make an argument. doesn't mean you're with the argument. doesn't mean it's okay. And by the way, if you're going to make this argument, you should face the music too. You know, if you're going to expose classified information because in doing so, you are addressing some deeply, some, some true immorality or some ethical failing of the United States government, you should do that, and then you should be able to stand up and look your fellow citizens in the eye and say, well, this, I, I understand that this was a risk, this was a judgment call, but I will face the music. I will stand before a jury of my peers if need be, if the, if the government decides to bring charges here, because I know what I did was, was justified and moral. That's not what happened here at all. There, there's no moral or ethical argument to, uh, to make the case that this information should have been leaked from within the bureaucracy. Now, it may have been political appointees. I, I, you know, that's, this is tough. I, I'm not sure. So it really may have just been the Democrat machine operating under the cloak of national security, uh, national security apparatus. But really, this is just you know, some of former Obama officials, Obama buddies, that gave this stuff to the press. But if it was somebody from inside the civil service side of the House, if it was somebody who works... Uh, in intelligence and national security that's not a pure appointee. And there are very few, understand this, there are very few, numerically speaking, political appointees in the national security side of things. Uh, When you look at the full scope and scale of how many people work in national security for the government and how many of them are political appointees, it's it's a tiny fraction. But, of course, the most powerful people are political appointees. So... Uh, you see the possibility that the bureaucracy may have decided to weigh in in favor of the Democrat Party here because that's all. The, the, the Flint thing was just to embarrass somebody and to embarrass the Trump administration. Uh, it didn't in any way, shape, or form make us safer or better or anything else. I mean, maybe you can argue that the, the, new, the new NSA will be better than the previous NSA, but in terms of the actual act itself, it, it didn't didn't provide any material benefit to any, or any real benefit to the American people. And it, of course, humiliated a, a good man and has added to the turmoil facing the Trump administration. Uh, we're going to get into this some more, too, with the EPA in just a few minutes here. But you've got employees of the EPA who think that they're allowed to weigh in against the would-be director of the EPA. Uh, their job is to enact policy. Their job is not to make policy. And honestly, if if they don't want to work for Scott Pruitt at the EPA, 
They should just get the heck out, resign, leave, find it, find another job. That's just the truth. You know, I, look, I, I, I resigned from the CIA under the Obama administration. I came up to New York and took refuge in New York City from, from Langley and, and all that was going on in D.C. And a part of my calculation was, look, I, I, I'm not going to I would do I did the best that I could. Uh, for the Obama administration to provide the best analysis I could when I was working the CIA during that. But I'm allowed to decide, you know what, I, I just, I don't want my job to be serving this president. I'm going to leave. That's ethical. You don't want to do it? You don't want to serve? You leave. What would not have been ethical would have been for me as a CIA employee to try to find information about the Obama administration that would embarrass it that I learned through classified means and to release that publicly to undermine the administration's policy. I'm an executive branch employee. No, I left and I became a critic of Obama and the media. All these people who work for the EPA or inside the intel community still, if they hate Trump so much, they need to man up, resign, and address the public, put a name and a face behind all this stuff, and address the public with their concerns so that they can be evaluated by the American people and we can act upon it. That's, that's the ethical thing to do. What we are seeing right now is subterfuge. It is subversion. It's unethical. It's immoral. And it shows us just how thoroughly rotted the government bureaucracy, the federal bureaucracy, has really become. It's a scandal. And I'm glad that the administration has made this, has brought this to light, has made this more visible for all of us. All right, 888-900-3393, team. We've got a lot more. I'll be right back. Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. Uh, a lot going on right now because you have a an executive order next week on immigration that looks like it's going to be coming out, which um, here is an opportunity uh, for the Trump administration to address some of the concerns that were laid out by the judge and uh, by the judge. Well, the judge is really first. There was the Robart order out in Wisconsin. But I'm sorry that uh, if you hear if it sounds like I'm a little um uh, a little subdued today. It's just my my voice is uh, is being tested every day with the five hours of radio, and right now it's a little uh, a little tenuous. So I want to make sure I can get through the show tonight as well. So I, I can't give you quite the projection and uh, vocalizations that I usually would because that strains the vocal cords, and uh, I I don't want to be on. Uh, whisper whisper patrol on radio for three hours tonight. So apologies for that. I should be. Uh, back 100% again on Monday, but it's, I don't, I don't know how, you know, I guess I, I, somebody told me that meatloaf, the singer, as opposed to the food, which is a very, by the way, meatloaf can, my mother used to make delicious meatloaf. Meatloaf can be really good. I think that it's a much maligned entree, uh, just because people overcook it and let it get too dry. But my mother used to make great meatloaf. Uh, like really, you know, a little melted cheddar in it. It was really good. I remember it very fondly. 
But Meatloaf the singer, uh, as I understand it, would take... Uh, this was just told to me recently when I was talking to a producer friend at Fox, uh, that he would not speak for two days before a concert. He would write on a pad, even to his wife. No, no voice for two days. Now, I don't know, does Meatloaf, uh, you know, would he do anything for love? You know what I mean? Um, but that's, you know, your, your voice, like a lot of other things, can get strained out. So that's why, uh, or can get strained. That's why I am not able to uh, be quite as animated as I usually would be today. And I know it's a Freestyle Friday, so I'd love to be, like, all fired up with you guys. But tonight I, I, will, I, will, I will kick it up a notch. Bam! Like, like Emerald. Uh, so you can play, you can bet on that. And we've got some great guests tonight. And by the way, those of you who can't find me on your local station, AmericanHourRadio.com, starting at six Eastern till nine. Just go there, go to that website, and click Live Listen. And uh, we've got some fun stuff coming up for the podcast there too. All right, team, back in just a few. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Our team, we're very fortunate to be joined now by Kim Strassel. She is the author of The Intimidation Game, How the Left is Silencing Free Speech. It's a great book. You should go pick it up on Amazon.com right now. And she's also a columnist at The Wall Street Journal and a member of the journal's editorial board. Kim, great to have you. Thanks for calling in. Hi, Buck. How are you? I'm all right, thank you. You know, rocking and rolling on a Friday here. So we've got two excellent pieces of yours in the journal, both of which are dealing with primary policy issues facing the Trump administration right now. Uh, First, let's start with don't wimp out on climate. If Trump doesn't dump the Paris Accord, his economic agenda is in jeopardy. Where where does the whole climate fight in the with the administration stand right now? And what are some of the issues you address in the column? This is what's alarming, and it's why I wrote it, because you'll remember that Trump was very vocal and adamant when he was on the campaign trail that one of the first things that he was going to do was uh, remove the United States from the Paris Climate Accords and also stop sending money to various United Nations uh, green climate funds as well, too. Uh, I'm now hearing that there is a growing contingency within the White House is pushing instead to, to not withdraw from Paris, saying that that would be too big of an upheaval, cause too much international blowback. Uh, and you also had some alarming comments come from Rex Tillerson when he was at his hearing to become Secretary of State, in which he said, I think it's very important that the United States keep a seat at the table. Uh, so the column was an attempt to talk about what a very bad idea indeed it would be to just let Paris continue on. And what would be some of the what would be some of the negative effects of it? I mean, if we go if we decide or the Trump administration, I should say, doesn't uh, stand firm on this one, this would really affect not just the energy sector, but the economy overall. Well, here's the thing that I think people are confused about. There's been a lot of talk about the fact that these were, quote, non-binding commitments that we made. And that's been one of the arguments by those saying, just let it be, don't risk the blowback, because we're not required to these commitments anyway. 
The problem with that reasoning is that if you look out right now at the, quote, resistance and everybody who is uh, pushing against Trump, one of their main new tools are lawsuits. And there have been attempts in the past and plenty of thought among environmental groups about filing lawsuits and getting courts to agree that pieces of paper that we sign, even if they weren't ratified by the Senate, should in fact be held binding on the country. And I can guarantee that a lawsuit like that will get fined, uh, submitted if Trump doesn't remove us from the Paris Climate Accords. And at that point, we will have major trouble for a lot of reasons. I mean, as it is, even if we were to enact the entire Obama climate agenda, we'd still be about 45% short of what we committed to do at Paris. Uh, If President Trump moves ahead to get rid of that climate agenda, which he said he would, we're going to be about 70% short. So imagine if the Supreme Court suddenly comes out and says, you must follow through on these commitments uh, to, to Paris. What would that do to the economy? I also think it would leave in place uh, a framework that if the Democrats, let's say, in two years, the midterms have a a surprisingly strong showing or even for the next presidency, if it turns out to be a Democrat, which could be in four years, uh, then you would you'd have this agreement. And so to to leave it in place, I I don't think I don't think the argument that it's completely innocuous uh, holds much water based on what we've seen from the environmental left in the past and and present. That is an excellent point. And remember, too, we're dealing with courts that, uh, for instance, a lot of um, Clean Air Act lawsuits and other things having to do with the environment are held in the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. That's the court that Harry Reid made sure he packed with liberals before he left office. Um, We've got a Supreme Court where One of the reasons we're even having this discussion about carbon is because back uh, in the 2000s, you had uh, Justice Anthony Kennedy join with all the liberals of the court to to declare CO2 a pollutant. Um, And this is a guy who also is quite interested in taking his guidance from international law. So I don't think that there's any guarantee that if a lawsuit was filed, that they might not get some joy out of that and and succeed in forcing the United States to accede to these commitments. I think there's also a symbolic point here as well, too. Paris was the ultimate example of the president operating outside of Congress and the law, uh, pushing us into an international accord without having bothered to pass a law on climate legislation here in the country um, or, or following the will of the people, which generally don't want that. So it would also just be a strong message to say we're not going to go along with that kind of unaccountable bureaucratic regime. And the EPA right now, there's some interesting tumult going on. Uh, you have people who are career employees, supposedly civil servants, that are reportedly reaching out to their senators and making a lot of noise and perhaps even preparing for a bit of uh, in, intra, intramural resistance against uh, a Pruitt EPA chief. What can you tell us about what's going on there? So this is an incredible break with decorum to have uh, EPA employees actively lobbying their senators to vote no on a new EPA head. But it doesn't surprise me. There has been such hysteria over the Scott Pruitt nomination that people have completely lost their wigs. I mean, the reality is, is that 
I mean, first of all, this is a very dangerous prospect. There are 15,000 EPA employees, and I would wager that about 14,995 of them oppose Scott Pruitt as the head of the EPA and oppose a, an agenda that does not look like one that the Obama administration has. Um, and EPA employees have a lot of ability to sabotage within. If you can go back and remember Ronald Reagan's uh, first appointee to the EPA, Ann Gorsuch, who actually happens to have been the mother of the, the current Supreme Court nominee, uh, she was run out within about two years, in part because of resistance from EPA employees. So, so they have the ability to do a lot of damage. I think they'll be surprised, though, maybe when Scott Pruitt gets there. Um, in fact, everyone should go to the Wall Street Journal later tonight. Uh, we have the first big interview with him. Uh, he's set to get confirmed today. Um, and, you know, he's got a lot of really interesting plans for the agency that might surprise them. Right. I mean, they're operating under the assumption that he's going to show up and basically say, everybody clear out. You know, we're going to put uh, we're going to put charges on the foundation and, and, and turn this whole thing into rubble. I mean, that's from what I understand, that's their objection. They really believe that, except well, for the explosive part. But you know what I mean? They, they, yeah. He's going to destroy the agency. I mean, that doesn't make any logical sense. Look at Scott Pruitt. What do we know about Scott Pruitt? This is a guy who, yes, he sued the EPA 14 times. But did he do it because he hates the environment? No, because every one of these lawsuits was making the argument that the EPA had exceeded its statutory legal uh, rights to, to go and do what they were doing, whether it was the waters of the United States rule, whether it was their climate plan, that they didn't have the authority under the law to do this. So what we know is that he is a law and order kind of guy. Well, here's the reality. We do have laws on the books, Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, that do charge the EPA with enforcing that uh, and, and making sure that we, we do have an improving environment. And as a law and order guy, I would bet very highly that Scott Pruitt respects that. And in fact, we'll see that as his top job at the agency. I think this goes to the hysteria on the left around uh, around environmental uh, environmental protection in general, they always conflate disputes over climate change, response to climate change, uh, what the cost benefit analysis of that may be, uh, depending also on how much of a how urgent of an issue one may find it to be. There's also the well, what do we do about it? That that's an ongoing discussion. They always seem to then also think that because there's uh, a divergence between Republicans and Democrats on that issue, and, and the right and the left more generally that we don't care if people are dumping toxic waste in the rivers. You even have people like Bill Maher out in, out in uh, L.A. saying this on his show. You know, now they're dumping toxic waste into rivers, or that's, that's going to be okay. In fact, nobody's okay with that. There, there's no pro-poison me and, and have poison water constituency, <laughs> but the Democrats do, uh, or a contingent of the Democrats, do seem to believe this or at least say it. Well, yes, there is this conflation of the idea that if you don't believe that the climate is changing and the earth is in peril uh, and that you need to stop everything and, and grind the economy to a halt to do something about that, then you are anti-environment, which, of course, is nonsense. And I would point out that in terms of, of pouring toxic sludge into river, there's only one agency in the country that's actually managed to do that over the last couple of years, and it was the EPA. Um, so, you know, we've got some... <laughs> yeah bureaucratic mismanagement that needs to be dealt with as well, too. But I mean, th there's a reality here, and this is why what you just said is so corrosive. You go out and you talk to an average American. Imagine 
talking to a, a person out in Washington State that's living near Hanford, Washington, which is a site of one of the largest and ugliest Superfund sites, the Hanford Nuclear Waste, and that has been on the Superfund list for, I think, now close to 25 years. You ask them, which would you prefer that the EPA devoted all of its resources to, cleaning that up or inventing some more models on climate change? Yeah, there are real issues that the EPA handles and that there's bipartisan support for the EPA on this. But because climate change is, I believe, not to put any words in your mouth, Kim, it is effectively a religious belief for people who think they're too smart for religion. Uh, it, it overshadows everything else that becomes that the EPA is really just an institution uh, that is supposed to address climate change as its primary mission, as, as the number one mission. That's where there's the divergence. You know, no one says, oh, Flynn has uh, has poisoned uh, Flint rather has has poisoned drinking water. Uh, that's not something that we should care about or pay attention to. Th- nobody says that <laughs> there seems to be this bizarre uh uh, suggestion or or even statement that's made by many on the left, including politicians and people with real platforms, that the Republicans just want to get rid of the EPA entirely. And, and I think it's it's counterproductive. We all agree we don't want uh, poison in our water and, and air that chokes us when we when we walk outside. Nobody wants that. No, and we all have to remember that the EPA hasn't done has in fact when it's been focused on its core mission done good things. We've had remarkable environmental progress over the last 30 years. And that is in part, we all need to remember, to th- uh, things like the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act. It's also, we need to bear in mind, because this gets forgotten, uh, largely due to the actions that states themselves have taken in absence of the EPA or in cooperation with the EPA or in cooperation with each other. The cleaning up efforts in the Chesapeake Bay, that was a state-driven initiative. Uh, the efforts recently to uh, deal with the habitat for the lesser prairie chicken and, in fact, keep it off the endangered species list, that was a state-driven effort as well, too. So, you know, I think I'd be even more cynical than you in some ways on, on the global warming and and uh, religion idea behind this in that not everyone but the kind of true believers in this, the reason they focus on this issue is is not necessarily because they believe the world's going to end tomorrow, but because they understand that if you can make the climate argument, you can implement a huge number of other aspects of their political agenda. Because yeah, you know, the government can do anything, over the it's it, and it's trying to save the world. Yeah, you know, you can justify anything in the name of dealing with climate, and you you do what the Obama administration did, which was turn the EPA into a, a supercharged and national super regulator that suddenly was able to tell you what kind of chainsaw you could buy and, and what kind of car you could drive and what kind of electricity you could get and how you make different products. I mean, it, it, it could get its hands on everything because energy is involved in everything. Kim, two things. One, I have to look up the Lesser Prairie Chicken. I'd never even heard of that before. So, oh, is that what that was? You story said? Buck. <laughs> oh, I got to check this out about the Lesser Prairie Chicken. I didn't even know that was a thing. So, thank you for giving me some Google homework. And also, can you come back uh, on on one of the shows? Maybe next week, the night show. I want to talk to you about healthcare and your column on it. But we're we're running we're running out of time here. Is that cool? Yeah, you bet. Very cool. You have fantastic. A good rest Kim Strassel, everybody, check out check out her book, The Intimidation Game. Go to Amazon.com, just type in the Intimidation Game, it'll pop up. And also, Wall Street Journal columnist Kim Strassel. Thank you so much, Kim. Good to talk to you. You too. Bye-bye. All right, everybody. On the flip side of the break, I'll be right back. You're listening to The Buck Sexton Show.
on the Blaze Radio Network. The offer of a... Don't miss the Chris Salcedo Show. Finally, the United States has a pro-Israel government. That has Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu smiling from ear to ear. What this means for the United States and the only functioning democracy in the Middle East. And if you think about it, BB and Trump have a lot on their plate. I think the first order of business would be to undo Barack Obama's stabbing of Israel in the back in the United Nations. The Chris Salcedo Show, weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Well, team, uh, I got to tell you, this is this is a pretty, uh, pretty astonishing. I'm, I'm just seeing this now um, on the side of uh, on the side of uh, everything has to be political now all the time. A this is from the New York Post, a liberal mom click forces school to cancel skating party at Trump rink. Let me read you a little bit from this New York Post piece here. An elite Upper Upper East Side private school's annual ice skating party at Trump Wallman Rink in Central Park had to be canceled after parents refused to send their kids in protest of the president. The Parents Association at the Dalton School, uh, I know, I knew people who went to the Dalton School um, for the first grade, I mean, for for lower school, which is... um, Kindergarten, first grade, second grade, third grade, I think is how they break it down. Uh, Dalton is $50,000 a year. Let me just repeat that for you. Your kid is eight or nine years old. You're paying $50,000 a year to send them to school. So just start with that. But the Parents Association at the Dalton School sent a letter Thursday announcing the Dalton on Ice event was scrapped, saying it would not be financially prudent because of significantly lower attendance. Uh, But the low attendance was due to rampant anti-Trump sentiment at the elite prep school, which boasts alumni such as CNN's Anderson Cooper. Oh, not surprising. Um, I think it's completely insane, one Dalton parent who disagrees with the protest said. Like him or not, it feels like a strange place for New Yorkers to protest and sad that kids now have no skating party. Yeah, that's right. You can't even have a skating party at a rink with the Trump name on it because that's this is really going to show Trump something. It just means that kids can't go ice skating because their parents are progressive, self-righteous lunatics who know nothing about politics and just want to lecture everybody all the time. All right, Team Buck, Hour 2 coming up. The Buck Sexton Show. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Any home or business can quickly become infested with mold with the introduction of a water source like a roof or plumbing leak. When your home, your belongings, or your business becomes damaged, it's not just about cleaning up the mess, it's about reclaiming your life. And that's why you need to call the Water and Mold Removal Hotline, a licensed, fully insured, affordable, non-invasive solution to solving any water and mold problems. Our team of trained specialists are available with 24-7 emergency service. We will quickly evaluate your problem and give you a plan that will guarantee results. 
Water causes damage and mold can spread throughout your property in as little as 48 to 72 hours and can produce allergens and irritants that have the potential to cause serious health hazards. So don't waste time. Give us a call now. For any water or mold problems, call the Water and Mold Removal Hotline. Call 800-442-7043 today for a free estimate. That's 800-442-7043. Now, spreading freedom across the nation, this is... The Buck Sexton Show. All right, Team Buck, welcome back to the Freedom Hut. Uh, we've got Harlan Hill with us, who we've had on before. He's a great guest. He's a former Democratic consultant turned Trump supporter, and he's also a tech startup founder. Harlan, welcome to the Freedom Hut again, my friend. Good to have you. Thanks for having me. It's always great to be with you. You know, I haven't gotten a chance to ask you about this, so if you don't mind, please... Your, your transition from Democrat consultant to Trump supporter, uh, how did that, what was the process there? What was the, what was the thought process and, and what, made the, what made you make the change? So I get this question all the time. It's, it started out that in, at the beginning of the Democratic primary in the, in the 2016 election, I was supporting Bernie Sanders. Now I supported him uh, by holding my nose because I'm not a socialist. I'm actually a pretty moderate guy. Um, I think you, not to interrupt you, but I think you were on my show when you were supporting Bernie Sanders. And I was like, this is a very sensible, reasonable, and intelligent individual. We should have him back at some point. But continue. Yeah. So, look, I liked what Bernie said. Like, yeah, that's right. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I liked what Bernie said about trade. I I liked that Bernie was pointing out different issues with the decline in the American middle class that was largely spearheaded by the Democratic establishment, but also elements of the Republican establishment. So, Donald and Bernie were pointing to a lot of the same problems. Their solutions, however, were quite different. Um, when it became clear that Bernie wasn't going to win, that his politics were way too far to the left for me to really uh, stand, um, I started to take a really hard look at, at Donald. And uh, I haven't looked back since. I mean, you know, even through all of the scandals, I've been pretty loyal. I mean, this guy, I, I really believe um, is standing up to the media establishment in a way that both Democrats and Republicans have hoped a candidate would for so long, or a president now would for so long. And uh, he's making, he's following through on his promises, whether it's the wall, whether it's taking in, uh, NAFTA on to renegotiate the trade deals. Um, he, he's actually following, you know, following along with, with, with his promises. So it's a breath of fresh air. Um. By the way, the way that this is being covered, the presidency is being covered on the left uh, and by by Democrats out there is pretty, pretty incredible. I mean, you've got MSNBC's Rachel Maddow uh, and Shimon, let's play this clip, saying that Trump has failed in every conceivable way. Play it. The the personnel debacles and the serious scandals that already attend to this less than one month old presidency are really, and without hyperbole, they are unlike anything that we have ever seen at the start of a presidential term. And that's completely leaving aside the issue of policy. 
I mean, there has been no significant legislation passed since this president has been in office. He has signed into law zero major policies. The only exception to that is his Muslim ban and refugee ban, which he signed as an executive order at the end of January. Well, today, as the president proclaimed how finely tuned his machine is, as he crowed about how perfectly everything has rolled out thus far, including that Muslim ban, today, that too, his first policy initiative, that today, completely fell apart. Administration lawyers, as he was wrapping up that press conference, they were writing to the Ninth Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals today, asking that court to please vacate its previous ruling, striking down the ban as unconstitutional, or at least, forgive me, upholding a stay on it. The reason the administration asked the court to vacate their previous ruling is because, quote, the president intends in the near future to rescind the order and replace it with a new substantially revised executive order. This is the one substantial policy they have tried to enact. In this first disastrous four weeks of his administration, this is the one policy they have tried to enact. And today, all he right, was let's let Harlan out. Right, we don't enough of Maddow, for heaven's sake. <laughs> Harlan, I want you to respond to Ms. Maddow there. Go for it. Yeah, look, the mainstream media and the liberal media, which are really one and the same, are totally incapable of honestly covering this president. They're, you have to put this into context. For 18 months, they made comparisons to Hitler. They compared him to Hitler. They compared Kellyanne Conway to Goebbels. They, they now, you know, in the New York Times, I just read a piece on there uh, asking whether it's time to call Trump mentally ill. The BBC's done the same. I saw something in The Guardian. Their, their bias is informed by their belief that their role in, uh, in, in, in American democracy is to defeat the states that return. And so she's doing really well with her ratings now because she considers herself to be in opposition to the president. And there are elements of the Democratic Party that appreciate that. But let's not confuse what they're doing and what The New York Times is doing and what most of the liberal media is doing with journalism and because it's not it's just not and really sort of amazing that these democrats are calling out donald trump for not being able to pass legislation in the what is it four weeks he's been in office when barack obama was totally incapable of walking and chewing gum at the same time and he spent uh, he spent the vast majority of his first um, uh, uh, term as president of the United States, putting out fires as it relates to Obamacare and his stimulus bill. He was totally incapable of, uh, of executing the Democratic agenda. Um, and and he, so it, it just smacks of unbelievable um, a lack of self-awareness that they're criticizing Donald Trump for not being able to pass you know, sign a bill in his first four weeks when he's just trying to get his cabinet in order. Um, you know, if, if in a year Donald Trump hasn't made any movement on the wall, if he hasn't made any movement on NASA, we don't have we don't have real tax reform and we don't have a repeal and replace of Obamacare, then I'm going to be in the streets mad as hell, you know, saying that, you know, Donald Trump's not following through with his campaign promises. But at this point, I see that he's laying the groundwork for it and that he's putting together a team that's going to be able to execute on this efficiently. And so, uh, you know, Maddow's living in an alternate reality, but I think that's informed by the fact that, you know, she doesn't feel as though um, she's beholden to journalistic standards. Instead, she's just feeding red meat to to liberal viewers that, you know, are are, are eating this up. This is exactly what they want to hear. 
What are your expectations for uh, the next major Trump policy agenda items that are coming up here? We've got the new executive order on immigration supposed to hit next week sometime. That's obviously going to cause quite a flurry. And you mentioned Obamacare. That's going to take some time. They're saying tax reform will also take some time. Uh, so what do you think is uh, what do you think is going to have enough momentum to perhaps influence or change some of the media narrative? I know they're going to hate Trump no matter what, but at least they can't focus on just a White House in disarray. They're going to have to deal with what he does. What do you think he's going to be doing in the next few weeks? Well, frankly, I think part of that's going to be driven by the legislative agenda of uh, Paul Ryan and, and Mitch McConnell. Um, you know, Ann Coulter had that scathing piece out yesterday about how you know that they Republicans in the House had passed numerous repeals and replaces of of Obamacare during uh, Obama's administration, and you know we've been around for four weeks and they haven't done anything. Now I'm going to give them a pass for now because they've been a bit distracted, especially you know Senate Republicans. They're just trying to get. Donald Trump's team lined up. But I, I think Obamacare has got to be top of the list. It's got to be. You know, obviously, Donald's moved, at least in part, to mitigate some of the problems of Obamacare by signing that executive order that um, instructs the IRS not to enforce um, the, uh, the, the the penalty. So, you know, there, there's, some, there's some steps to mitigate that. But this is really a crisis. I mean, I was talking to somebody who's a small business owner in South Carolina, and he employs several hundred workers. He's got a great, thriving business. He's been around for decades, and Obamacare is going to put him under. And I know that there are hundreds of small business owners just like him that cannot put their business under the burden uh, and, and, and taxation imposed by Obamacare. So I think this is top of the list. I think this is an economic priority that, Ob- that, that Trump should take, uh, take seriously. Um, tax reform is a little bit more complicated. I think it's just as important. I think Wall Street's expecting it. And, you know, he's obviously very concerned with the performance of of uh, the of the, uh, the, the 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 stock market. And uh, so I, I think that because that's so visible, he's going to tax reform and, and make it a priority. But, um, you know, I, I, they shouldn't rush that. Why, why can't they? I'm just wondering, Harlan, why, why yeah. can't they do tax reform? In the, you know, why, why no, can't I, that be done in the next few weeks? I mean, Paul well, Ryan, I, I, you feel like the guy goes to sleep every night with a copy of the tax code under his pillow. You know, he's like a he's like a budget super nerd. This is what this guy yeah. does. You've got members of yeah. Congress. I mean, what are they doing all the time? I mean, are they really just fundraising and trying to get on you know, trying to get on cable news? I mean, I, I, I agree with you. I've, I've got Ann coming on on my show at night tonight uh, to talk mm-hmm. about this. Why? We're, OK, Obamacare, very complicated. I get it. But they've been fighting and complaining about Obamacare for years. The tax code. We now have a Republican president, a Republican majority in the Senate, Republican majority in the yeah. House. Yep. I mean, I feel like this should be like they have a, a, a book of things they want to do. They put it out on the table and they go execute. But I mean, I must be missing something. What am I missing? Well, I mean, part of the problem, and Ann mentioned this in her piece, is that Republicans had a 90 percent reelection uh, rate in the last election. I, I think that there are a lot of establishment interests. I mean, you watch this on cable news. I actually saw one congressman on Fox News one, uh, one hour and then I saw him on CNN the next hour. And, and he's a Republican congressman. I'm not going to drop his name, but he, he said basically he, he, he was praising Trump on Fox and trashing him on CNN. And so I think that there's some duplicity on, on the part of even Republicans in the House of Representatives. I don't really feel like that they're necessarily in line with him. Um, and, uh, you know, as for tax reform, uh, I, I believe the height when uh, people point to, to budget 
suggesting that, you know, if we institute major tax reform, um, especially at the corporate level, that it's going to throw some of the numbers off. Um, and so there's, there's, you know, but one also argues that there will be economic growth that, that uh, is derived from those tax cuts. But, I, I, you know, there's division with even, even within the Republican Party as to whether that's, that's, that's true or not. So uh, I agree with you. I expected, given all of the rhetoric that came out of Paul Ryan's uh, town hall on CNN, that they had a plan that they were just going to pull off the shelf to repeal Obamacare, that they had a plan on tax, tax cuts, they were just going to pull off the shelf, lay it on the table, and pass. That's obviously not true. Which is the question, what were they doing for six years that they were in control of the House of Representatives during uh, the Obama administration? Were they just, were, were, are they just a party in opposition? Are Republicans just a party in opposition? And, and they, they were, you know, they were passing these bills, repeals of Obamacare to, to look good, or are they being serious about governing? And um, I think that, frankly, Donald Trump should hold Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell to the, to the fire. Because if they aren't able to agenda through um, quickly, there are going to be repercussions in 2018. I don't think the Democrats can win back the House or the Senate. We see that Democrats are already retreating from Florida um, in, in the Senate race there. But, um, but there will be consequences. And, um, and I think Donald should, should lay it out. If you guys don't perform for me, I am going to, uh, I'm going to campaign against, I'm going to primary, you know, I'm going to have, I'm going to have, you know, surrogates, uh, campaign allies, primary you in your local. And I, I think that that should be something that, that, uh, that most Republicans stand behind, at least Republican voters. Um, I'm sure that the establishment, the RNC wouldn't, but these guys have been there for too long. They were not loyal to Donald Trump through the, through the election. And I think we'll betray the stab him at the back in the back. Uh, convenience. All right, Harlan. Appreciate very much you joining us here. Harlan Hill is a former Democratic consultant or Trump supporter. He is at H-A-R-L-A-N on Twitter. And we were hoping he'll be a uh, regular guest here in the Freedom Hunt. Harlan, great to have you. Come back soon. Thanks, Brian. Bye. Take care. Uh, phones are open. 888-900-3393. And team, I've got a lot more show. I'll be right back. The Buck Sexton Show. Discover more at theblaze.com slash radio. The Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to The Buck Sexton Show. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. We are joined now by Matt Walsh. He is the author of the Matt Walsh blog. He's also a Blaze writer. You can read his latest on theblaze.com, and you can download the Matt Walsh podcast. And a little heads up to all of you, you should definitely check out his book, which you can pre-order, The Unholy Trinity. Matt, thanks so much for calling in. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, all right, let's talk about your piece. I know it was uh, published earlier in the week. We haven't got a chance to discuss it here on the show yet, though. Apparently, unborn babies are only human when they belong to Beyonce. First off, I, I thought the Beyonce performance was bizarre and pretty terrible. And the weird Beyonce worship thing, I couldn't agree with you more. The uh, Adele saying that Beyonce should have won it and breaking the award in half and everything. Look, I think that this is not just an extension of the cult of personality that celebrities have, but there's also political correctness involved here. I don't think we should be shy about saying that. And I wanted your take on both that and also 
how unborn babies are only human when they belong to Beyonce, as you say in your piece. Yeah, it's a really it's a I, I, the Beyonce thing. It's it's a it's a I didn't realize that I didn't realize how bad it was until I you know criticized her once in something I wrote a while ago, and then you get the I guess they call it the Bay High. It comes after you. And these are people who, we talk about celebrity worship, and sometimes maybe that's a hyperbolic way of putting it, but this is literal worship. Some of these celebrities are literally worshipped as gods, and that is uh, what happens with Beyonce, and you saw in their performance, which I only saw clips of, I didn't watch the whole thing, Uh, I couldn't stomach it, but she obviously sees herself as a sort of pagan deity of sorts, uh, which is why she was traipsing up there on stage. Like, I didn't know what she was going for. It, it, at certain points, she looked like she thought she was Christ at the Last Supper, and at another point, she's some Egyptian goddess or something. I don't know, but um, it's, a, it's a very, you know, it's a, with, with, in modern, with celebrities in our culture today, not only are they deified by their fans, but they tend to deify themselves and compare themselves to God, to gods, and it's a very uh, troubling thing. But on top of that, yeah, it's, you know, she... Uh, it's not just Beyonce. Anytime a celebrity gets pregnant, a famous person gets pregnant, we know we, we you know, look liberal media, the media goes crazy over it. And you've got all of these outlets and all of these people who usually wouldn't even dignify unborn children by calling them babies. All of these people suddenly are, you know, they're calling them babies. They're talking about, they're using phrases like life in the womb. They're saying you know, Beyonce had their performance and she was pregnant. It's a celebration of motherhood. It was, I mean, all of these really glowing terms about unborn babies and about motherhood that you would never hear otherwise. Um, and I, I would like, if I was maybe more optimistic, I would say, well, you know, it's, it's, maybe it's a good thing because at least, even if these people in our culture don't normally respect unborn children, at least in this case they do. So that's, that's getting us somewhere, I guess. But what I talk about in the piece is that it's, this is actually just a symptom of, uh, it's not an exception to their usual pro-abortion ideology. It's a symptom of it, where, where they think that, you know, it's not that unborn babies aren't people. It's that they're not always people. You know, some unborn babies can be people, but whether or not their humanity is sort of bestowed upon them by external factors. So, they're, they're people if they're wanted. They're people if society wants them. And they're especially people if they are wanted by, you know, their famous, rich, uh, attractive mothers. So we see how, you know, when I look at it, I see how the, the humanity of the unborn is, is determined by these external factors. And this is just another symptom of that. Yeah, it is. It is a very important point you make here that there's so much. Uh, there's all this effusive uh, praise and celebration of Beyonce's twins, and and as you point on the piece that you celebrate any any woman having twins or a baby or four babies quads whatever it, it's it's a beautiful thing, but it's no more beautiful that Beyonce is pregnant than any other woman is is pregnant in terms of the worthiness of the life and the importance of it, and that is completely lost on the media. I mean that that's and not just the media that's completely lost on. Everybody who is pro-choice, everybody who is part of this celebrity worship, they they never make this connection, of course. And I, and I think they would be indignant, Matt. I'm sure they would be. You probably could share some emails if you pointed it out to them. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, well. Certainly. And uh, and you know, the, the the other thing that I, I was I remember a story. Um, I don't know. It was a couple, maybe a couple of years ago. Uh, uh, speaking of Adele, she made some comment about how 
uh, her, you know, being a mother is the best thing in her life, and it's where she. Wait, finds Matt, her can I age. can I get you to hold this answer? We'll we'll get it. I'll let you finish the other side of the break. Is that all right? We're just running into a hard yeah. break here. So, Matt, you're talking about Adele and uh, and pregnancy and Beyonce. Uh, we're speaking to Matt Walsh, everybody. We're going to have him on the other side of the break. Matt, thank you for being flexible. And team, we'll be right back. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Don't miss Pat and Stu. The Buck Sexton Show. And we're back with Matt Walsh. Uh, pre-order his new book, The Unholy Trinity, and uh, read his latest piece on theblaze.com. Matt, I'm sorry to interrupt. We had to go on a break there. What were you saying about Adele and Beyonce's worshipped pregnancy situation? Yeah, yeah, it's not often that I have opinions about Adele and Beyonce, but uh, it, I, I just I can remember a couple of years ago, maybe it was a year ago or so, that Adele said something in an interview about how you know she's a mother and she finds joy in it, and that's where she finds her purpose. And uh, the liberal media was upset about was upset at her about that, saying that she was diminishing her accomplishments and reinforcing gender stereotypes and gender roles. So it's just interesting how. You know the the context in which women are allowed to celebrate motherhood and when they're not, and it's just it seems kind of random because on one hand you have Beyonce celebrated because you know she's got this performance and she's pregnant and she's making that a big focus of the performance. And on the other hand, over here, so it's just it's an interesting. It seems it seems somewhat random. I don't think our culture knows exactly what it wants to do with women and motherhood and children and all those things. Yeah, I don't know if you saw this. This is just an aside, Matt. But Carlos Santana. Who I know best because he uh, of he's so smooth that song with uh, Matchbox Twenty, which now that I'm saying yeah. this out loud, I feel like I'm admitting something to everybody, including you. But uh, he said he said that uh, Beyonce was not really a singer, or she was sort of more of a performer, or there was some other way, but not really a singer. He had to walk that one back real quick. The uh, Beyonce police came for him. Yeah, yeah. God forbid. God, God forbid you're offering any kind of, and that's, and that's, in my opinion, that's a, an accurate uh, criticism. I mean, she's more of a, you know, most of these pop, pop stars are really just dancers, and they don't write their own music. The, the vocals aren't really the focus of, of the performance. So uh, I, w- I would tend to agree with him there. All right, now, Matt, I want to get back onto the policy side of things for a second here. Uh, we, we know that the G- House GOP has been saying for a while that they would like to defund Planned Parenthood. Uh, where does that stand right now? And and do you think they're really going to, are, are they really going to go forward on this? I don't know. That's a, that's a really good question. I, I, have, I don't know what they're doing. I, and I know it's only been a month, but um, if you look at what the Democrats did when they, when they, when they owned uh, the house and Senate and the presidency, they, they moved, they moved very, very quickly on some really big pieces of legislation and some big aspects of their agenda. And I'm not sure a month in what have the Republicans done. They don't have a lot of time. They, don't, they probably only have two years with this kind of power, and they need to move on things. And one of the things that they said they'd move on is defunding Planned Parenthood. I don't know why they can't just do it. That's something they, they should have the votes for. They could just do it and get it done. 
they haven't done it from what I've read. They, they, you know, they want to attach it to, um, repealing Obamacare, but even now there are some reports that, you know, some Republicans, moderate Republicans are backing away from that and saying, maybe we don't want to attach that to the Obamacare thing. So my, my fear is, uh, is that look, doesn't it kind of sound not to interrupt you, Matt, but it kind of sounds like some of them are losing their nerve a little bit. You think that's fair to say that's, that's what it strikes me as. Yeah, well, I would say they never even they never had nerve to be to begin with. It's easy to have nerve on things like this when you don't have power, and so you can just say, "Yeah, well, if I was in charge, I would do this and that." But now they are in charge, and so they actually have to demonstrate that nerve. They don't have any. My, it's, a Planned Parenthood's been funded for forty years, and we've had Republican Congresses before. So my fear is this is just going to be more of the same, and, and uh, they're going to make some excuse and just bide their time till two years from now and they're not in control anymore, and they could say, "Whoops, you know, too bad." If I could make you policy czar starting on Monday and both Trump and I know this is crazy, but just play along with me, both Trump and the GOP uh, leadership in the House and the Senate would have to listen to you and take orders from you as to what they should do next. What would be your top policy item agenda? Where would you want them to go? (laughs) Oh, man, there are so many things. Well, repealing Obamacare is obviously a top priority and. I, I guess I would like to see that done first, but that I realize is a little bit more complicated, and that, is, that that will take some time to, especially if they feel like they have to replace it with something, which I don't think they do. Um, I, that kind of defeats the purpose of the whole idea is we're we're getting government out of healthcare, not just getting them involved in a different way. But either way, it's that's a, a, you know that was the whole fear, the whole problem with Obamacare in the first place is that once it's once it's in there, you know, once you have a program like that, people are dependent on it. It's difficult to take it away. Um, so for me, I, my, my first thing I would do is defund Planned Parenthood because it should be so easy to do. It's just all you have, you know, there's, it's, there's not much to it. You just do it. And, uh, aside from the way people, you know, a lot of people, of course, the liberals will react to it in, in a very apocalyptic way as they always do. But in reality, it won't affect anyone's life. Nobody outside of, you know, the executives of Planned Parenthood will even really notice that it happened. And so it's such an easy thing to do. And I think it's really important because, Call me crazy, but the fact that we're giving half a billion dollars every year to a company that murders uh, 300,000 children a year, that to me is a really, really big deal, and we should stop doing it, and uh, and we should make that... Isn't it fair to say, Matt, that, that given that that is the position of anybody who is truly pro-life, there's an urgency here. Uh, defunding Planned Parenthood, if, if one if one is in fact pro-life and believes exactly what you just said, which I think you have to believe if you're pro-life, it does. this is not the sort of thing where you want to sit back and say, we're going to give us another 12 months, you know, see, see how it plays out. No, shouldn't they? They should do that now. And so the attaching it to Obamacare, which we're told is going to take a long time, to me seems like almost an unconscionable and unethical delay. Yeah, I would. I certainly would 100 percent agree with that. This is what I'm always asking so-called pro-lifers, be they Republican politicians or otherwise, do you really believe what you're saying or not? Do you actually believe this or don't you? Because if you actually believe it, then you believe that children are being literally murdered and we are funding it. Um, and so that should be something that just is causes unbelievable rage within you and you want to do anything you can to stop it. So that's, or do you not believe it? So all these Republicans that say, you know, claim to be pro-life, if they don't really believe it, they don't think it's a big deal, you know, then just just come out and admit it so we can vote you out of office. But but be honest about what you really believe. And then whenever you believe, let's act on it. That's that's all I'm saying. Yeah, I, I, I think some I think some of them are going to be 
They might get exposed, Matt. I don't think I think a lot of conservative uh, or rather a lot of GOP congressmen in very conservative districts. They just say what they think they have to say. Um, all right. Matt Walsh, uh, the author of the Matt Walsh blog. Read his latest on the blaze dot com. And everybody go check out Matt's book. You can pre-order it. The Unholy Trinity. Matt, thank you so much for joining today. Buck Sexton. Buck Sexton. Dispensing the truth. On the Blaze Radio Network. All right, Team Buck, welcome back to the Freedom Huts. Uh, I've got to say that this it is a fascinating time to be in the media and covering politics and national security uh, because I've, I've no one's ever seen anything like this. You've never seen a situation where the incoming uh, or now recently uh, recently sworn in commander in chief, I should say, is beset by progressive activists on all sides they view their they view themselves as having a mandate here to go against the Trump administration using every means every method at their disposal there is a, this is a siege mentality that, that the Trump team must have i would assume it must have because it's so clear that much of the bureaucracy is against them. It's so clear that the media is the opposition party. You know, earlier in the week, uh, Steve Bannon, who uh, of formerly of Breitbart, uh, was saw a bunch of reporters all lined up outside of an office, and reportedly said to them, "Oh, the opposition party all lined up," which I have to say I think is quite funny, and it's true. What you're seeing happening with the Trump administration is a lot of illusions are being shattered. This whole notion of a press corps that is dogged and honest and non-ideological and just bringing you the facts and speaking truth to power, we've known for a while now, not for that long really, when you look at the full uh, sort of the, the the full span of mass media in this country, which, by the way, started starts in a set. Well, yeah, it really starts with the printing press and newspapers. But radio was a tremendous expansion, and then of course you had TV later on. But when you look at twentieth century and into the twenty first century media in America, for a long time, this idea of a press corps that is an essential bulwark of democracy and that is really has has a a mission that is a sacred civic mission. Um, this has been a central theme of major journalist institution journalistic institutions for a long time. It's a lie. Now, not it's not a lie that they don't speak truth sometimes to power. It's not a lie that they uh, try to be accurate. And, and and I know there are a lot of reporters who do really good work. And believe in what they do, and it is a necessary part of an informed citizen uh, citizenry, and it is necessary for a well-functioning democracy. I know we're a republic. This is, we're not a democracy, republic. Yeah, I know, but we use the terms. Come on. So, 
the part the part of it that's problematic is that they don't have an overwhelming ideological bias that informs their reporting on the editorial side of things, but also on the so-called hard news side of things, you know, the straight front page news stories. And they still, it's really not, an, it's fascinating to watch. They're, they've become irrational on this issue because they can't win that argument, but they still want to make the argument. You know, CNN is a Democrat institution. I mean, CNN is, uh, I, I, I would wager, if you, if you could actually look at the political affiliations of CNN employees, it is at least, and I mean, across, I mean employees, anyone having anything to do with the news cycle there, so I'm not including back office and you know admin and such, but anybody who is part of how they cover the news, I would wager 75% of them are Democrats, and it might be as high as 90 to 95% of them. Now, you're going to tell me that that doesn't, and I, I work there. I'm not, I'm not just spitballing out of nowhere. I mean, this is an, an anecdotal but informed estimate. You're going to tell me that doesn't affect their... What do you think at the, at the New York Times? Yeah, I know they have a couple of columnists who are conservative in some way, although David Brooks is um, about as reliable as a fortune teller when it comes to his conservatism. I mean, give me a break. But you've got uh, Ross Douthit, who does a good job over there. But forget about the... because At least there, they're labeling people as ideologues or ideological, and you know that. I'm talking about the actual newspaper. The editorial board is controlled by liberals, of course, but the front page is liberal. And I know you know all of this, so I'm not I'm not bringing it up to belabor the point or to tell you things. You're like, yeah, Buck, I'm already, we get it, right? We're in the freedom up. We, we're already on board. We're, we're already up to speed. I know you are, but I think it's it's bears repeating because that's why there's such anger and hatred and, and all the rest of it of Trump is that not only are we aware now. And have been for a while of the media bias, but there is a president who has a tremendous platform and has real facility and skill in dealing with the media, who just says what we all know. The the he's he's ripping off the fig leaf. the The veil is gone. There's no more pretense of oh, I'm asking you know NPR a question, and I'm going as a, and as a Republican, I'm getting a fair shake. Why Why do we play that game? Why do we pretend? Or why, why does anyone go along with this? It's, a, it's preposterous. But you'll notice that even though they could never win an argument that they're not Democrat-leaning or they're not infiltrated by Democrats, even though it's obvious to anyone watching this, they still bristle. They still become agitated. They still don't like it. And the reason for this is that even though we all know that the media is biased, there's still a value, because a lot of people, and some of them, probably people listening to this show right now, a lot of people are working really hard, providing for themselves, providing for their families, and they don't have that much time to look at politics closely, and they shouldn't, honestly. Um, for most people, politics should be something you're somewhat informed about to the degree you care and need to be, and that is it. It should not be an obsession. It's an obsession for me because this is what I do all the time, and that's just how I'm wired. But for most of you, honestly, straight up, you've got more important things to do. And I really mean that. You have more important things to do than sit around and read you know, 50 different websites and 
go through all the different Twitter streams and Facebook and all the stuff that I do day in and day out and it keeps me up late at night. This is my job. This is why I hope I bring value to you every day because I do all of that so that I can give you the best, the most important, the most insightful distillation of that whole process. But you have more important things to do, straight up. Um, but for the for the the part of the country, um, I'm sure some of you probably are journalists and, and yourselves and some of you are uh, certainly incredibly knowledgeable about the inner workings of D.C. in a way that I'll never be because you've worked in Congress or on the Hill. But nonetheless, you understand what I'm saying. But for much of the country, it's not as clear cut. And so when they listen to news outlets, there's still a propaganda effect to it. There's still the, oh, well, it's the New York Times. There's still this perception that there is a gravitas to these places and that filter, even if it's subconscious, filters into your thinking, filters into your perception of things that's going on, about what's going on. Trump is shattering all of that. That's why they hate him so much. He's saying what we all know but don't say about the media, and it's incredibly profound and powerful. Now, we're going to continue this discussion tonight, team. Go to AmericanOutRadio.com slash, uh, or just AmericanOutRadio.com to listen live. You can go to AmericanOutRadio.com slash podcast. You're listening Soon we will to have Buck Sexton podcast. on the Blaze Radio Network.